that creepy lullaby music means this week we're discussing children and nuclear terror, one of my favourite topics, as I'm a child of the 1980s and can remember the terrible dread and also the astonishing realisation that the adults can't fix it for you, they can't sort this one out, not even your gran can rescue you from a nuclear war, you're on your own. And as a child, there is probably nothing more frightening than realising that no one can help you. Um, I've spoken before on this podcast about a period in my life when I was having such severe panic attacks that they <laughs> they rendered me agoraphobic. I actually couldn't leave the house for a while. I just couldn't, couldn't even go out into the street. And when I was finally coaxed outside by a nice ex-boyfriend who took me on his arm slowly round to Spa on Cathcart Road. I remember being absolutely terrified of the sky. I couldn't look up. I could not stand to look at it as it seemed so vast and overwhelming. And a couple of years later, when I was able to look back on that period, I remembered this strange terror of the sky and started to wonder if it was actually connected to my nuclear war obsession. As we know, the nuclear threat, of course, always comes from the sky. That's where the missiles and the bombs come from. That's where the terrible flash occurs. That's where the light appears that will burn you and melt you and evaporate you, turning you into nothing but a shadow on the wall. It all seemed to relate to the sky. Now, I remember the nuclear dread that I felt as a child. It's a very specific, cold and heavy type of dread. And I also remember feeling that exact same type of dread once uh, in the 80s during a thunderstorm. I can remember I had a bowl of um, Heinz chicken soup in a horrible, very 1980s, black, chunky, hexagonal shaped bowl. I remember pushing it away from me. I didn't want to eat anymore because I felt so sick and full of dread because of the storm outside. So again, it's the sky. It's always the bloody sky where this terrible sense of dread is linked to. So when I was reading about the feelings of dreads and anxiety provoked by nuclear war in children, there was one quote which really leapt out at me and I've used it as a title for this podcast. I found it in Joanna Bork's book, Fear, A Cultural History. And it describes um, a small boy growing up in Chicago during the Cold War who was so terrified of the bomb that he said to his mum, Please, mother, can't we go someplace where there isn't any sky? And I just thought, oh, poor little dude. I sympathise with you so much. He was um, growing up either 50s or 60s. Um, so even though my dread was occurring 20 years later, in a different continent, of course, different time, different space, I could still sympathise with him. That wee boy in Chicago in the 60s was the same as me in Glasgow in the 80s. Terrified of the sky, begging your mum, can't we go somewhere safe? And of course there isn't anywhere safe, that's the horror of nuclear weapons, nowhere is safe. And of course there is no such place as somewhere where there isn't any sky. And of course, children always look to the parents or the adults to be sensible and to frighten away the monsters, keep you safe from the baddies. But in this case, they can't. And that is just horrifying as a child. No one can save you and there is no such thing as a safe place. 
I found a book called No Need to Talk About It, which is about uh, children facing the nuclear threat, uh, confronting all their fears, talking about how terrified they feel, and of course psychologists wondering what can be done about it. I'll read you some uh, quotes from it. Um, it's really it's quite heartbreaking because the children, of course, they're so innocent, they're so afraid, and running through most of their quotes, there is the strange helplessness, the strange sense of, but, but why can't they, of course, they being adults, why can't they fix it? Why can't it be sorted out? And, of course, there's no solution. Or if there is, <laughs> we, we still haven't found it. And so there's no answer we can give to these frightened children. There's nothing that can be done. We can try and soothe them. We'll look later in the podcast at the Civil Defence Advice for Children in America, uh, Duck and Cover, presented as a cartoon from a happy little turtle called Bert, who offered them advice. And, of course, we know that it's useless advice, but maybe it gave the children some comfort, and that's all you can give them. It's fake comfort, of course. Um, the advice is useless. But what what else can you say to them? So it's, it's terribly sad that nothing can be done to um, soothe these poor little children. But that's the reality of, of the nuclear bomb. So here's one quote um, from the book. Um, these are conversations with uh, between children and their therapists or counsellors. Um, quote, Once I had a really scary dream about nuclear war, but I didn't tell mom. I worry before I got to sleep. What if there was a nuclear war and everyone running around and going crazy? And what if there really wasn't? But if everyone thought there was, then people would just send the bombs because they thought there was. And everybody would be screaming and lost. Another quote. If there was a nuclear war, it'd probably blow up the whole world. And if you were driving back and you didn't know it, you'd probably fall off the world. And another quote here. Sometimes I just really think about it and go, God, it would be really awful if there was a nuclear war. I get sad because everybody, people, the kids and everybody who wants to live a nice life would just get killed. And I don't think that's really fair. Life isn't fair. I know that's a terrible cliche, but it's true. Life isn't fair. But in these quotes, we have children being really logical. (laughs) They're not hampered by any debates about policy and deterrence and the arms race, about communism versus capitalism, about East and West. They just say, but it's not fair. It's frightening, it's horrible, and it's not fair. And they're right. It's not fair. But we're stuck with it, aren't we? Now, of course, all these fears uh, that possessed children, um, and adults, of course, but um, we're looking at children in this podcast, all these fears which occupied their their heads, they, they didn't just appear in dreams or in films or comic books. They were made um, tangible by air raid drills, which were practised in schools. Here's one child um, recalling an air raid drill at school during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Quote, The school had regular duck and cover drills, but during the week of the crisis, we had a duck and cover drill almost every day. One day, apparently our teacher had not been notified of that day's drill. When the school klaxon suddenly started the one long, too short duck and cover signal, our teacher screamed, Get under the desks now! and dove under hers, which she'd never done before. I remember being crouched under the desk, my face buried in my arm, and just shaking, too scared to cry. After what seemed forever, the one long all-clear sounded. I don't think I've ever been so frightened in my life. 
And of course, um, some authorities in America issued dog tags so that children, um, the idea of course there was that they were engraved with the child's name, address and blood group. And of course the children would wear these dog tags so that if the bomb dropped and the child's burned body was found later, the child's body could be identified and returned to the parents or buried in a in a marked grave. Of course, when it came to the thermonuclear age, people realised there was no point worrying about the identification and the dignified burial of bodies. It would be impossible for millions of um, dead. But in the atomic era, in the 50s, a lot of cities in America issued these dog tags to their children. And again, according to Joanna Bork's book, she says that um, many of the children, of course, were horrified by it. Um, imagine having that little cold metal necklace put around your neck and knowing it's not a pretty thing. It's not a piece of jewellery or a piece of decoration. It's there so that your black corpse can be hauled out of the pile and returned to your parents. It's horrific. Um, but Joanna Brooks' book also says that, quote, other children refused to ever remove the dog tags, even in bath or bed in the belief that they were a talisman which would miraculously save their lives in the event of an atomic bomb attack. So they become almost like good luck charms. There's things you can put around your neck and you associate it. Maybe maybe if your mum put it around your neck, then it becomes a comforting thing. Mum put it around my neck and said, it's, it's so that we'll always know who you are, so we'll always be able to find you. So maybe it seems comforting. But according to Bork's book, there were some poor little nippers who clung to their dog tags and would never take them off, thinking it would keep them safe. An article in the Washington Post about the dog tags um, has some um, reminiscences from people who um, shared their uh, memories of being given these dog tags. Janet Davis of Frederick MD. um, MD, which state is MD? Maryland. <laughs> she remembers being issued with her dog tag in the early 50s um, when she was living in Houston at the time. Um, she says, quote, It's just like a military tag in size and shape, aluminium, and stamped with my full name, my mother's full name, her street address, city and state, and a letter P for Protestant. That last was for proper funeral rites, I guess, if my remains were found under my school desk. The newspaper also talks about uh, the material they were made from. Of course, Janet Davis recalls them being made from aluminium. Some people from Washington, D.C. remember being issued with brass dog tags. But when they were subject to tests, uh, obviously not a nuclear test, but some of them were held up to a blowtorch to see if they would withstand heat. And they didn't. They just melted in the heat. So the brass ones were later replaced However, if uh, brass didn't stand up to a blowtorch, neither would those given out to the children of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. These were issued in October 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course, and they were made of cardboard. Uh, One man was given a cardboard dog tag, which again had emergency contact details on it, And he recalls that he wasn't allowed to get on the school bus in the morning without it. So I imagine the cardboard dog tags were just like the the tags that um, British school children during the Second World War had when they were being evacuated. 
uh, and they looked a bit like just normal luggage labels. Now, I don't know why you were, you'd be issuing children with cardboard dog tags so you could identify them after a nuclear war, because obviously cardboard isn't going to withstand any kind of flame or heat. So maybe, if we're not being gruesome, maybe the cardboard dog tags were just in the hope that the children aren't going to be burned, but uh, simply lost or separated from their parents, you know, in some kind of hurried evacuation. And it's simply, as with little children in Britain during evacuation, it's simply to identify them when they are whole and healthy and intact. It's got nothing to do with burning. Seems a bit naive, of course, given that we're talking about a possible nuclear war. But nonetheless, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, apparently dished out cardboard dog tags. Uh, And of course, being America, these weren't all issued by the states. Um, Some were issued by the local schools. Some were um, made available to local parents, but you had to pick them up at the local office and pay for them, of course. Uh, Some you could send away in a magazine, send away for one, and it would be engraved and sent back to you. So you probably had to pay for most of these dog... Most people had to pay for the dog tags. It doesn't seem, from what I've read, that there was a national scheme to issue an engraved metal dog tag to every pupil. It seemed to happen on a city-by-city basis. Some were made of brass, some made of aluminium, some made of cardboard. Some were made available to you, and some you had to fill out a little form and enclose some money and send away for. It's all different. According to the book Awaiting Armageddon... Some um, districts, which were probably strapped for cash, couldn't afford to issue fancy metal engraved dog tags. And so, in this case, Denver and Detroit, their alternative and cheaper suggestion to local parents was that they sew labels into their children's school clothes. So while these American children were at school with their cold metal dog tags swinging round their neck or the labels itching at their collars, they were being drilled in what to do if the atomic bomb was dropped via the Duck and Cover public information campaign. Now, schools would run through drills with them. They would be, the children would be simply sitting at their classroom desks where when the teacher would suddenly tell them to duck and cover, and you'll have seen it on YouTube, plenty of films on YouTube showing this, the children would leap out of their desks dive under the desk and curl up into a ball, clasping their hands behind their neck. So that was duck and cover, roll up into a ball, and you're protecting your face, your eyes, your head from the flash. Of course, if you're in a city, if you're in a target area, there's no point hiding under a desk. But the government, of course, were obliged to issue this information. And perhaps morally, we were all obliged to try and comfort children. So the duck and cover campaign was issued, accompanied by a nice friendly turtle called Bert. And he issued some jaunty, friendly advice for the children and what to do. Looking back at it, we all know there's nothing you can do if you're in a target area, you're done for. But 
to stop children perhaps screaming with nightmares, to stop waves of depression and horror and constant anxiety, this public information campaign went out giving the idea that if we all listen to the teacher, if we're all good children, if we all do what we're told, then we can be safer. Uh, To be fair to the campaign, it doesn't ever say you'll be safe. It always says you will be safer. So if you read between the lines, Bert the Turtle isn't offering any guarantees. So let's listen to some clips from the film. Here's Tony going to his Cub Scout meeting. Tony knows the bomb can explode any time of the year, day or night. He is ready for it. Duck and cover. Atta boy, Tony. That flash means act fast. Tony knows that it helps to get to any kind of cover. This wall was close by, so that's where he ducked and covered. Tony knew what to do. Notice how he keeps from moving or from getting up and running? He stays down until he is sure the danger is over. Atta boy, Tony. It's so jaunty and merry. It's like an adventure instead of the possible end of the world and agonising death. It becomes like an adventure. And of course you could say it's misleading. It's uh, we're lying to these children. Or you could say we're being merciful. We're protecting them from the truth. And so it's quite um, hard to ridicule the duck and cover campaign because it is aimed at children. Britain's most famous uh, nuclear public information campaign, Protect and Survive, that's obviously ridiculous. It was absolutely relentlessly um, mocked when it was issued, and rightly so. Whereas this one, it's hard to mock it because it's aimed at children, so of course it's simplistic, of course it's a bit silly, of course it's a bit light-hearted, and they can be excused for bending the truth or warping the truth because they could say, well, we're trying to comfort children and keep them calm. So they very cleverly um, defend themselves against a lot of the insults that Protect and Survive drew by saying, hey, we're aimed at children. What are you going to do? Hey, Bert, come on out and meet all these nice people, please. Oh, all right. We really can't blame you. You see, Bert is a very, very careful fellow. When there's danger... This is the way he keeps from being hurt. Sometimes it even saves his life. And again, it's hard to mock this because um, when I watch it, I don't feel sardonic or sarcastic. My lip doesn't curl up in a sneer as it does when I watch or listen to Protect and Survive because Duck and Cover, Bert the Turtle, it actually makes you feel quite sad because those poor children in it, I remember being one of them, not in pretty and clean small town America in the wholesome 50s. I was um, in the 80s in a grubby council estate in Glasgow. So even though I'm separated by time and space from those little 50s school children, I still feel a kind of kinship with them because surely children all over the world of all different types of affluence or class or nationality, when it comes to being faced with the bomb, we all become the same, surely. We're all just frightened We all just want to be warm and safe and we look to mum and dad or gran to be safe and we find there is no such thing as safety, not in the nuclear world. 